This is News Talk on the VOCM Bigland FM radio network. The views and opinions on this program are not necessarily those of this station. And now your News Talk host, Linda Swain. And good afternoon, everyone. Well, um, Claudette, did you hear that in the news forecast there? Uh, Risk of frost. Yeah, um, I'm just poisoned, to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) I just like this now. I'm just going to have to take that risk. You know what? Yes. I thought that too. I'm like, I, I, I need some form of color in my life now because this gray is really doing me in. Uh, well, for sure. But you and know, the cold. Uh, all of this uh, pales in comparison to the ordeal that's being experienced in the offshore right now. And the world is watching as rescue efforts are underway for a submersible reported missing at the Titanic wreck site. That's two uh, miles down. The submersible with five mission specialists on board is operated by OceanGate, a U.S.-based company involved in taking paying customers on an exhibition to the famous wreck. CEO Stockton Rush visited the VOCM studios back in February for the release of a new video from the ocean floor, and he spoke with me at that time about the excitement and the perils of such an operation. Here's some of what Stockton Rush said about the submersible and expeditions to the ocean depths at that time. Very quiet. And one of the unusual things is very quiet, partly because our sub is so quiet. So we we custom built the submarine, uh, submersible it's called, um, to be quiet for for filming mostly. But if if you're in the Russian Mir subs or Alvin, they typically have fairly noisy uh, fans uh, blowing blowing air. We have very quiet fans. And then the thrusters can also be quite noisy. And so it's a very, the, the, the sub is very quiet when it's, cruising along. So how was this particular um, documentary shot? Was this back in July? Uh, This was, yes, this was back in July. Uh, It was all taken from just one dive. Um, And most of the footage is from our subsea imaging camera, which is a a local uh, Newfoundland company. Uh, They have a a great 4K camera, and that's mounted on the cross brace, which is about 6 to 12 inches off the the bottom of the sub. And then we also have a few shots from uh, the dome, so inside the uh, the 15 inch uh, inside diameter viewport everyone has their iPhones going and we have a, um, a GoPro and things like that but most of it's from that Rayfin camera very still down there. Do you get currents at that depth? Typically, you do. So, um, I said, Rory's been down there. We brought uh, P.H. Nargile has come with us on all the expeditions, and he's got the most experience of diving on the Titanic. He was the commander of the French Nautil submarine and uh, and did many dives down there. And he says it used to have a lot more current. Um, so, you know, we've been fortunate the last two years. The current has been you know, less than a quarter knot. Um, as the current gets up, it can make it much more challenging in, in how you approach the wreck and what you can look at but we've been we've been quite fortunate to have essentially no current how do you determine from the surface what the current might be like two kilometers down it's not easy (laughs) and so uh and and it's not just the current two miles down the question is what's the current in the middle and so uh it's very difficult to get that current profile um over the titanic and so you're on the some of the eddies and sometimes in the gulf stream over the titanic so on the surface we were seeing you know one to two knots of current and then you drop down and you basically are free falling so when we when the sub starts descending from the surface it's going down at about three knots and the first time
time we went down, um, we had judged that we should drop about a mile to the south of the wreck because typically the currents were going from south to north. Um, and we dropped, and for the first 300 meters, we were going the wrong direction. So we were going away from the wreck. And if we're more than a, you know, a kilometer to two kilometers away, it's questionable whether we'll get back. Uh, but as soon as we went through the thermocline at 300 meters, it switched and went the other way. So the you know, sigh of relief, and then we're cruising back, and we get close to it. So that's a, a challenge. And the, one of the bizarre things is that current will change day to day by 20 to 30 or more degrees. And it's a, it's a two and a half mile column of water. And it, it'll, it, it's just surprising the amount of energy it would take to change that. So you don't always know. It's a little bit of a crapshoot when you, when you drop. You know, are we going to land, you know, to the south? Are we going to land in the debris field? Are we going to come? We haven't come right down on the wreck yet. Um, but we get reasonably close. And then once you get down there, that's when you find out what is the current, you know, down down low and you can you can feel that you can see the bottom and you can you can sense what the current is literally like finding a needle in a haystack i would imagine because this is all you have no visual markers <laughs> on the way down uh, i i would imagine it's most of that journey is in the midnight zone. Is that correct? Uh, yes, it's it's very dark out, but there's lots of life. So we will leave the lights on, and you'll see all kinds of critters go by. So you have what's called marine snow, uh, and it, that's going by the viewport. Uh, and then every so often, a critter will go by, and the weirdest things you've ever seen, you know, two eyes and a long tail or these uh, um, these chains that look like uh, a, pearl, a string of pearls and they're all individual animals connected and they go racing by every so often one of them will chase you back down thinking you might be something to eat or have some food coming off you and you'll, they'll look at you and you'll look at it and then it'll give up and decide you're not worth the energy and float off so i think that's one of the funnest things is the two and a half hours you're going through this pitch black and and the fact that there are these critters that just live there never see the sun cruising around will we'll flash the the lights so if you flash the white light You've got broad spectrum light that goes out and all these critters have their own bioluminescence. So 90 plus percent of the communication is supposed to be um, bioluminescent down deep. And so when you flash the light, everything will respond. Some are responding, hey, I'm over here. Some are responding, you know, you look cute. Should we mate? You know, you never know what they're responding to. And so they're flashing lights back at you for about 10 seconds. Uh, one, one person was commenting that the funny thing about that is, you know, we flash it up and we're all happy to see it. And they're all terrified because they just got this big light and you know, it could be a critter coming to get them. <laughs> and so, you know, yeah, or it may be their big chance to, to meet another one of their species. And so they all quickly respond and spend their chemical energy to pop a few uh, a few lumens of light out. But it's an amazing effect. Does it surprise you how much marine life is down at those depths? Yes. Yeah, very much so. It's, it's you know, I was, I grew up, you know, in the 60s, 70s with everybody saying it's, you know, all life depends on photosynthesis, that there's no life down deep. Um, and, you know, you want to scuba diving. Oh, why would you go below 130 feet? There's nothing down there. And that's just a complete lie. It's There's life all the way through the through the water column. It may be densest at the bottom, but there's tons of life floating in the middle. And so uh, I was always, I was surprised. And I didn't learn that till you know, when I started the business and started to really investigate deep sea life. Um, and then on this trip, we have marine biologists come with us. And... Um, one of them, uh, uh, Murray Roberts from the University of Edinburgh, gave a great presentation on uh, cold water corals, deep corals. And there are more deep water corals than there are um, tropical corals. And, so, and, and they look a lot like tropical corals. So there's sponges and fan corals. We came across this reef that had uh, tons of these things at, at 10,000 feet down uh, with no light. And they're just living off all the nutrients that are flowing by in the water. 
And there are a lot. There are a lot. <laughs> of those nutrients floating around. And you can clearly see them in the, in the, in the film as well. Um, would a lot of that be detritus from the, the wreck itself, or is that some of this marine snow, as you say? I don't know the, you know, the mix of those, but I would assume most of it's the marine snow. And basically, you have everything coming down from, you know, uh, Parts of fish that have died to uh, fecal matter to uh, bacteria to all kinds of things that are in the in the water and uh, as I said you see the marine snow going and you know whether it's a um, you know a um, uh, a plankton or it's a chunk of a fish that the shark didn't finish eating it's hard to say. Anything surprise you uh, when making these journeys and seeing some of these creatures going by? Uh, they always. It, I'm always surprised. I mean, I always see something I've never seen before, and I can pretty much guarantee I've seen something that no human being has ever seen before, and that's sort of a, an unusual thing on this planet to to be able to see stuff that's just totally new and it's an amazing it's a whole universe I I wanted to be a space guy and I grew up with the Apollo program and Star Trek and Star Wars and all the great movies that have existed about exploring space and had that thought that I wanted to be an astronaut and then I realized that by definition in the vacuum of space there is nothing and that what we've seen in the movies and what we think about what we dream about when we look up at the stars is all imaginary that really all the life to be discovered in our lifetimes is going to be in the ocean and it's as amazing as anything that uh, James Cameron has put in Avatar and and he's a very experienced uh, submersible uh, pilot and builder and a lot of that inspiration has come from his diving that's where um, the new species and the, and the new organisms are, it's in the, it's in the ocean. Our guest today on On Target is Stockton Rush of Ocean Gate Incorporated. We'll be back right after this. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. Our guest today on On Target is Stockton Rush of Ocean Gate Incorporated, a company recognized as a leading provider of crude submersibles for charter and scientific research. Why are we talking to him? Because he makes regular trips down. Down to the Titanic in one of these submersibles. So here's the rest of our conversation. Yeah, it's fascinating, and the comparisons you can make to space and the deep ocean, are, you know, are endless. It, it's black. It's mysterious. It's silent. It's deadly. Deadly, <laughs> exactly. So you, your company, has put together this submersible. Tell us a little bit about this machine. Is it tethered or not tethered? No, it's untethered. Wow, and, and, <laughs> that's scary. Well, it's scary, but it gives you a lot of freedom. So um, ROVs, robotically operated vehicles, are tethered to a ship, and so that requires that the ship stay in an exact location, which is a very specialized vessel, usually large and very expensive. Ours doesn't require that, and we can go places you just can't go with a tethered tethered robot. So that's one added value to it. Um, When I formed the business, um, I had this idea that um, there were researchers who wanted to go into subs. There were very few subs and fewer were being made. Most people were looking at robots and autonomous vehicles. Um, And then there was this this growing group of adventure travelers, this is 13 years ago, who were looking for something different. The people who were going to the Antarctic when it used to be a rare thing to do, or, you know, years ago, the people who go on safaris when that used to be unusual. They're always looking for something different. Um, And I thought, hey, could you join the two of them so that the researchers could have somebody pay to do the research and have a different kind of experience? 
so with that idea, went out and actually uh, bought a sub um, to figure out some of the other things I didn't know because I was an aerospace guy, not an underwater guy. And what we learned early on um, was that if you go in a sub, you've got to have someone on board who knows what you're, what's out there. Um, we call it a subject matter expert. And it might be a uh, nautical archaeologist. It might be a marine biologist. Um, it could be um, you know, an environmentalist. But it's like if you go to a, a museum and they, or an art gallery and there are no labels, um, you don't get a lot. And if you go with a, a guide who is passionate about the subject, it's a completely different experience, even though it's the same art on the wall. And with the first dive I went down, somebody said, hey, that's an that's a interesting fish. What is it? And I said, I don't know. I'm just a sub guy. <laughs> um, so you got to have a pilot. You got to have a subject matter expert. And then you don't do the coolest thing you're ever going to do in your life alone. You take your wife, your child, your best friend, something. You got to have at least two people. So that gets you four people. All the subs at the time that were out there were three-person subs. So that's a little bit of what Stockton Rush uh, had to say back in February when he visited the VOCM studios here. And we'll hear more from Stockton over the uh, next uh, day or so with uh, some of the details of what that submarine is capable of and all of those kinds of things as we watch very closely what's happening offshore Newfoundland right now. Coming up, icebergs drawing a lot of attention from tourists, but from campers? This is News Talk on VOCM. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty daily join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m to noon on your vocm we get people talking Work. and just a traffic note now a three vehicle collision on waterford bridge road near the ball field it's slow going in that area so please uh, be careful if you are uh, heading in that general direction you might want to avoid it for the time being well despite less than ideal weather conditions the interest in icebergs remains high so high in fact that one resident of twilling twillingate recently snapped a picture of what appeared to be a couple camping on top of an iceberg complete with their tent and equipment. The owner and operator of Ocean Quest Iceberg Exhibitions out of Twillingate and St. John's, Captain Barry Rogers, joins me now from Twillingate. Well, Captain Barry Rogers, how are things in Twillingate? Always great, Linda. Uh, we got um, uh, lots of icebergs here, so I mean, it's been a great iceberg season. And we're going out every day, and uh, folks are just loving it. I mean, we got plenty of icebergs to choose from, you know, and um, and they're not so far from the port, really. So it's uh, it's been a great season so far. I know people love icebergs, but uh, should they be camping on them? Is that true? What we're hearing? <laughs> well, uh, Linda, I can't confirm that myself because uh, you know I, I I haven't seen it. So, but I've heard uh, I've heard people talking about it for sure. So. Uh, um, well, I don't think much of that, i got to say. So how dangerous might something like that be? Well, my goodness. Uh, I, I, again, I mean, the this, you know, I don't know what size of iceberg uh, they were on, uh, if indeed that is the case. Um, but, uh, I mean, it's dangerous business. I mean, they're, they're, they're slippery, they're unpredictable, they're... they're uh, you know, there's a thousand ways to die on the ocean, and uh, but I mean, to uh, you know, to, to me, it's foolhardy. Uh, and 
you know, uh, I mean, that creates a lot of issues for a lot of people. If, I mean, indeed, there is a, a catastrophe, you know, uh, people going to uh, and to deal with that as such. So that's what I think about. I mean, uh, when you're on the ocean, you know, there's a lot of things can happen, but uh, you don't deliberately, uh, uh, to me, go and do something foolhardy like that. How on earth could someone get on top of an iceberg for starters? I mean, I know this was a fairly low, long pan type iceberg, but they had looked like full camping gear with them. So they would have had to have had that dropped off. Well, uh, I would suspect, yeah, um, uh, is either, I suppose, they either swam to it or kayaked or someone in a boat got it to them, uh, you know, if it was uh, any distance from land, I suspect. Uh, I, you know, I don't know where that was, where that took place, but uh, they had to get there somehow. And then uh, I guess if there was any height to the iceberg, uh, they'd have to have some kind of a cleat system. Uh, if that works on, on solid, brittle, smooth, shiny ice, you know. Um, so I'm not sure of that. I, ca- I can't confirm any of it, only what I've heard, uh, so to speak, you know, people talking about it. There seems to be uh, quite a, a buzz about it, you know. Not not wise, in other words. I don't think so. Uh, I mean, uh, I've been working around icebergs for years. And, uh, you know, with, uh, and again, in my world, of course, I mean, I've got the responsibility of being the skipper on the tour boat, you know, with uh, 100 people aboard. I mean, we take this very, very seriously and, uh, to, you know, and uh, the responsibility of it all. And uh, I, I've seen icebergs, uh, you know, uh, in a New York second, so to speak. Uh, you know, collapse and and um, and I mean the sea action from that and the the uh, you know the sea ice and so on. I mean that uh, the Bergen bits that come away from it and uh, you know if you're on an iceberg, I would suspect that uh, you know the water temperatures out here now is probably about two. So I mean that's quite chilly if you're submerged with the shock of that. So uh, you know the, the the after effect of it, I would think, would be uh, quite devastating. In the meantime, you're taking people out. Is this is this weather dampening expectations of uh, tourists this time of year? Well, Linda, you know, uh, it's been, you know, the gray foggy days we've been having here, that's for sure, uh, out in Dwellingate here. Uh, but, I mean, we, we, you know, we do have a ceiling uh, to be able to uh, see them. Of course, we got them on radar anyway. Um, they are moving targets sometimes. But, uh, no, it's uh, not dampening people at all. I mean, we're basically loading and going, and we're full just about every trip two, three times a day. And, I mean, it's a huge draw card here for our little town here in Twillingate. And, I mean, Twillingate really is living up to its expectations of, you know, really that uh, title that we earned over the years of the uh, the iceberg viewing capital of the world. And uh, no question that uh, we've got it here. There's literally dozens and dozens of icebergs and big ones and different shapes and contours, you know. And people are loving it from all over the world. And uh, we just came in now and... Uh, you know, it's a, a foggy day, but, I mean, there's something about the mystery. And I think it goes back again to this Titanic thing, you know, uh, um, uh, you know, the mystery of an iceberg. And uh, especially in the fog, there's something very special about that. Uh, anyone can see them on a sunny day, but uh, to be able to make that approach and see the reaction to it when it uh, looms out of the fog is quite, uh, quite interesting to see the look on their face, that's for sure. Now, you mentioned the Titanic, and of course, we're, we're getting breaking news today, and the, and the story is still evolving about uh, this submersible missing at the site. Uh, that puts chills through everybody at this on hearing that type of news, but I understand it, it does so, especially for you. 
Well, it, it does. And, uh, you know, I mean, a lot of our, uh, you know, the world really has been intrigued with that story. And, and you know, um, it, it plays a role. And, you know, every tour that we're on, I guarantee you that uh, there's some of our guests are saying, hey, you know, uh, how, how big was that iceberg that sunk the Titanic? And, you know, it's always a standard question we say. And, and of course, I don't know that. But, you know, uh, my response to that really, quite honestly, is that, well, the survivors of it all, I'm sure that in that uh, sad time and that th- th- those minutes and hours that that transpired, I would suspect that even a small iceberg looked quite large when you're in that uh in you know in in the uh, the Z of that we say in terms of the disaster of it all and having to deal with it you know, but um, uh, so certainly uh, that submersible when I did hear that it it sent cold shivers to me because I know the perils very well of the ocean and. And that is uh, the owner and operator of Ocean Quest Iceberg Exhibitions out of Twillingate and St. John's, Captain Barry Rogers. And certainly everybody is thinking about the uh, the people in that submersible at this time. Uh, uh, they've got a lot of experts on the scene uh, who are working very diligently to find that submersible and get it back up to the surface. So we'll be keeping you appraised of that as, uh, as the time uh, goes by. Well, coming up, air access dominates discussion in the business community. This is News Talk on VOCM. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Yes, and as you just heard, this uh, story continues to uh, evolve. Um, uh, VOCM's Noah Shepard just speaking with Radio London who has uh, confirmed that uh, UK billionaire Hamish Harding uh, on board that submersible um, and uh, uh, we're also hearing that Stockton Rush is, in fact, on board that submersible. Um, if there's any comfort in that, is that uh, uh, Stockton Rush knows that um, piece of machinery inside and out and knows all the uh, contingencies that can be used there. So uh, our very best wishes now going out to everyone involved in that, and uh, hopefully they'll get that um, up and um, back to the surface uh, and everyone is safe. Well, members of the St. John's Board of Trade met with the CEO of the St. John's International Airport Authority for a discussion on air access today at the Delta Hotel in St. John's. Air access has long been a concern to local business owners, including John Steele, who made an impassioned speech to Energy NL several weeks ago. It was a big topic at the recent Events Atlantic Conference in St. John's as well. And... uh, Canadian heavy metal icon Lee Aaron recently posted about her adventures trying to get to St. John's for Iceberg Alley last week, having to endure a number of delays getting here. It was reminiscent, of course, of uh, Krista Berg, who also expressed his frustrations with air travel following his performance in St. John's earlier this year. Well, Peter Quinton is a local promoter behind events like the George Street Festival and the upcoming Churchill Park Music Festival, and he joins me now. Hello, Peter Quinton in the fog. <laughs> oh, my God. Always. <laughs> always the fog. Always with the fog. Well, it brings to mind, uh, you know, the, this whole debate that we're having lately uh, about air access and the like. And I know some improvements have been made with uh, getting planes in in the fog, but it still doesn't help when it comes to uh, airline schedules and the like. We saw what happened to Lee Aaron recently with the Iceberg Alley. And uh, as an event planner and Events Atlantic just met in Newfoundland and Labrador, uh, that's got to be a concern to you. 
Yeah, it's always a big concern. I mean, it's, it's hard enough being over here in Newfoundland, shipping gear, you know, and things like that when you have advance notice. But a lot of the artists, especially for, you know, small to mid-sized events, they're uh, trying to fly in the same day. We ran into it with George Street quite a bit in the past. I mean, I remember one night Trooper didn't get on the stage till like, you know, almost 10.30 or something when they were scheduled to be here at 6. And I see what happened with Lee Aaron, with Sean and John there the weekend. I was down to that show. But it's it's a concern because, you know, you've got a lot of... Uh, You've got a lot of um, things on the line there. You've got tickets out, people ready to, you know, waiting for the band. And, and then, you know, what do you do? Do you do refunds if, if the head, certainly the headliner don't show up? So it's pretty nerve-wracking <clears throat> trying to get in and out of here. And, and we definitely need some better air travel, 100%. Tough for the artists, too, I would imagine. It is tough for the artists, depending on the contract. I mean, if they don't get here, do they get paid? It's it's always in question, you know. Is there force majeure events? Is there, you know, uh, lots of times if they don't make it, the travel is on them, and it depends how you word, you know, how, how the contracts are worded. But, but you know, it's certainly um, both ends are carrying a lot of liability with, with a problem with travel. And, and, I mean, on the mainland, it's so easy, and that's a big part of why artists don't want to come here. They... One thing, if they can fly in and know they can get here, it's not too much out of their schedule. They can fly in a little bit of equipment they need, their guitars and consoles, mixing consoles and stuff. But if you get into, you know, running the risk of also the airfare, which doesn't exist much in Ontario and places like that, then that's just another double-edged sword to say, okay, well, I'm not going there this summer. We've only got so many weeks to make a... uh, to make our money and and uh, if we lose that event and we get stuck there or we don't get there both of it is disastrous to the artist so it must make events planning a little trickier here than in some other areas yeah it's tricky getting the artist is the trickiest part i mean convincing them to come and sometimes like you know we do try certainly for the bigger events i do you know we do some private air um we also have the backup to have some private air available. So as if something should happen to, you know, one of the major airlines, because it, it's not always weather-related. I mean, it's staffing. And there's a number of things. And, and you know, when you got the private air availability, you, got, you, you know, you have to guarantee that. But standby fees and things are expensive, but they're less expensive than losing a, a sold-out show, for example. And, and it gives the artist more comfortable comfortability being able to come here and otherwise you 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 will not get that artist to even attempt to come here most times does it limit us in any way i mean i'm thinking um john Steele mentioned it uh, recently about uh, especially air access um across the atlantic uh, does it limit us in who we can bring here and and it must be people who are already touring the general north american area uh, most times it, it is that, and and when they're touring, you know, like I said, they can't interrupt their tour. They, they they need to know they can get in and out. Few of the acts I have for Churchill are actually more one-offs. We, we were lucky to get those the way they worked out. But uh, John is right. I mean, if we had if we had access to Europe, uh, not only for the for the uh, artists, but certainly for the customers too. But having better air access is key to having that security. You know, that the artist and the promoter knows that both, uh, you know, it's going to work. Your, your artist is going to go on stage relatively on time, and and uh, we don't have to, re, you know, pay out a fee, uh, headline artist fee, because they didn't make it, or 
or the artist is not worried about not getting paid. So it's a big problem. And Newfoundland is hard enough anyway, like I said, to get anything here. We're very isolated from the uh, main markets always. And uh, even, um, you know, if you, if you look at, uh, you know, in the touring season, I mean, most stuff bypasses us. There's a lot of things could come here. But because of the travel issues, they just don't. So what's the solution? I know we've been talking about this for years now, as long as I can remember. What are the, what's the solution? How do we uh, get better access? Well, I think we've got to have more flights. I mean, WestJet, you know, scaled back their, their, their flights last year, and I'm not sure exactly where it is now. And, and I think we need better flights. Uh, we're using a lot of small airplanes, which are not that comfortable. And for some degree, but from my understanding, and it's very limited that even with that new system they put in a few years ago in the airport, some of the planes that they're sending in here are not equipped to avail of that, to get in in foggy, you know, less visible conditions. And and maybe even some of the airline pilots aren't trained on it properly. That's my understanding, but I could be wrong, and I stand to be corrected. However, um, you know, That system was a very costly thing to put in, and I think if we're doing it to solve these issues, which would help, then they need to make sure the airplanes they're sending in are equipped with the, you know, instrument readings or whatever it is that 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 new system, that landing system was. Uh, Increase in, you know, maybe more airlines to come here, and not to ditch on a company like Air Canada, but... You know, I've watched a lot of airlines come in and out of here over the years that try to set up because they see a void in the market. Seems like one of the majors comes in and, you know, squats them out and, and puts on all kinds of flights. And the minute they're gone, they, they retract the flights again. Like, it's it's wrong. It should not be able to happen. And and uh, that's something that I think, uh, you know, is unfair. It's unfair to people who want to travel here, the tourism industry, uh, promoters like me. Uh, anyone doing events, artists, uh, and just people who want to come to Newfoundland in general. It, it's really, it really should be looked at. Peter Quinton, I do appreciate your time. Thanks so much. Thank you, Linda. Have a great day. And uh, Peter Quinton is a local promoter, of course, uh, behind uh, events like the George Street Festival and the Churchill Park Music Festival coming up this summer. Well, when we come back, the NDP raises questions about the cost of using travel nurses. This is News Talk on VOCM. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show, midnight on your VOCM. And as we indicated uh, uh, just a while ago, um, VOCM's uh, Noah Shepard has confirmation now from Radio London, who he was speaking to not sh- so long ago, that uh, UK billionaire Hamish Harding is on board the that uh, submersible missing near the Titanic um, wreck site. Uh, so um, we're also hearing that uh, Stockton Rush himself, who we heard from earlier in the show from a previous uh, program that we aired back in February uh, is also on board and not surprising because he sees the, the, the brains behind um, this expedition and, and the um, technology involved in it um, and um, there are five people in total on board that particular um, submersible and uh, efforts now underway uh, Boston Coast Guard involved in the search and uh, rescue operation there and uh, um, uh, we'll keep you up to date on that. A lot of international um, 
agencies involved, uh, you know, um, on this side of the pond and on the other side of the pond. So uh, we're watching this one very closely. Sometimes it's hard to gather that type of information when you have so many different agencies involved, but we'll uh, keep you appraised of that uh, unfolding situation as much as we can. It's uh, garners great interest here, of course, and, and these exhibitions come out of St. John's Harbor. Um, the Polar Prince, uh, which is uh, run by uh, Miapakek Horizon, uh, is uh, involved in that expedition. So there's an awful lot of people who get to know these people who are part of the crew, who are part of the uh, logistics involved, and so an awful lot of people in this province uh, hoping and praying for the very best outcome in this particular unfolding story. We, we will keep you up to date. Well, the NDP is concerned about the money government is spending on travel or agency nurses, uh, as they are also known, who are being hired to fill gaps in the healthcare system. There are currently more than 700 full-time nursing vacancies in the province, and government fills the gap with nurses employed by private agencies. Well, NDP leader Jim Din joins me now. Well, uh, Jim Din, what, what are your concerns there? You know, if you look at the uh, at the uh, the information, I think eighteen thousand eighteen million was spent, uh, and this is not the full uh, amount, but eighteen million spent four million uh, as I look at is towards salaries uh, for the nurses. So. I'm thinking, uh, Linda, that you know, if government is looking at fixing the situation, the the answer is staring them in in the face if they're prepared to do the work on it, the hard work that comes with it. And here's what I mean by that: <clears throat> they were prepared. They, uh, their 14 million went to Profloor to what other related uh, uh, to the to the agency? Four million went to uh, to the nurses. I'm wondering what 18 million dollars could have done to fix the problem in-house and to address the uh, the issues, whether it's the um, the uh, mandatory overtime, the uh, lack of vacation time uh, that the nurses union and other health professionals have been calling for. And yet uh, we know that they've spent huge, huge amounts of money. I, I'm looking at a March document that, you know, we're almost uh, going up towards $100 million on um, tra- uh, uh, staffing services, uh, tra- travel agencies, uh, for uh, traveling nurse agencies. So, you know, to me, um, I think in many ways this problem is a result of uh, of many years of uh, how do I call it budget based decision making in the uh, in the uh, in the pursuit of finding efficiencies. It created the human resource deficit that we now have, and. Uh, you know the the way the way is not through uh, not through hiring uh, agency nurses or the agencies, but fixing the problem so that the nurses want to stay in the system. But there's a difficulty here, of course, and that is that there's over 700 uh, nursing vacancies in Newfoundland and Labrador. And mm-hmm. uh, God forbid, if something happened to you or I tomorrow, uh, we hope that we're going to get the best care possible. If there's no one there to staff that uh, bed and you're in it, uh, then uh, a way has to be found to to staff that bed. Uh, so, uh, you know, how do we get around this whole situation? And I fully agree with you. And, and I'll be honest with you, if I was in that uh, bed, I would want the uh, <clears throat> I want the best care possible totally get where you're coming from totally agree with it 
but we've gotten in this situation, uh, it, it dug this hole. Uh, this is not just not just the current administration, but previous administrations, uh, by by basically cutting the service, uh, cutting the um, the benefits, um, coming up with short-term measures such as whether it's uh, mandatory overtime, and they become the default position. So here's what I'm saying: is if if government is prepared to put this much money, pay out this much money in travel nurses and, and, and agencies, then surely the God, we can start fixing the problem. We know it's going to come down to compensation uh, commi- uh, and, and a commitment to better working conditions. And, and, uh, and if government is prepared to do that hard work, I think you will attract uh, the, uh, the, those nurses back. That commitment, that's the issue here. Listen to the, what the Nurses Union says, and they're very, uh, they will tell you right now you still have the issues with the traveling nurses of uh, the overtime, the, uh, the poor working condition, uh, or the, <clears throat> the uh, excessive workload. I think, Linda, we've got to start uh, looking at the at the root problem. And I understand the need for traveling nurses right now, but that can't if that's just if that's become the default position. There's no incentive to do the hard work to fix the uh, the problem. And I think you know if if I remember listening to Yvette Coffey speak. There are enough nurses right now that uh, that you could bring back into the system to solve the problem, but it comes down to a retention piece. Um, so if we're prepared to spend, and this is a, a $18 million toward towards an agency, surely we can start looking at maybe we need to start putting that money directly into the compensation package, the uh, the benefit package, the uh, and, uh, reducing the workload um, uh, and, uh, within the system itself. I, uh, that's that's my issue with it. We're paying a lot more money for traveling uh, these these travel nurses. Surely we can be putting it into investing it into the the nurse uh, the nursing um, into the public health system for sure. And that that's where my point is. Will that happen overnight? No, but I would say it's going to be a little bit quicker than uh, than the path we're currently on. The other part of this is we're bringing nurses in from outside. Fantastic, but it won't be take them long before they get here. When they get here and they realize, hmm, I can make more money. Uh, Newfoundland and Labrador are lowest paid in the, across the country. We can. It won't take long before they figure out we can probably make more money as a travel nurse or in other jurisdictions. So. We can recruit all we like, but it comes down to the retention piece, and that's where government has got to do some hard work here. Now, we're just weeks away from the implementation of the carbon tax, and some serious questions have been raised about what kind of an impact that's going to have on the goods and services that we rely on here in Newfoundland and Labrador, all of which has to be brought in, uh, of course, uh, through one of two means. We all know what those are, uh, ferries or airplanes. So uh, are there concerns there about what kind of an impact this is going to have? You know, it's it's definitely uh, uh, and uh, there's always concern. But I guess the one thing I would point out is when you look at the if increases in food, the increases in uh, in fuel, uh, and yet at the same time, and uh, you have whether it's the supermarket chains or the oil companies making record profits, and even before the implementation of uh, of the uh, of uh, this carbon tax that's coming in. And I guess, Linda, I would I would have to point out, uh, or have to remind people, let's let's take a look at what's been driving up the uh, the uh, the uh, the inflation or the cost in these items. It's certainly um, it's certainly the, that that attempt to maximize profits and other factors that are at play. But certainly, profit is is the is a key thing here. The uh, whether it's the oil companies or the supermarket chains, they've had record profits, record profits, 
um, and at a time when, uh, when uh, you know, uh, when, when I guess the, the carbon tax wasn't fully uh, implemented. So is there a concern? I'm, I'm more concerned, too, with the, uh, the gouging that's already taking place, or you, whether you call it greedflation or not. Jim Din, I do appreciate your time. Uh, thank you so much. Enjoy the sun. <laughs> By the way, one quick thing. Yeah. I was talking to a lady, and I talking to one who uh, doesn't drive, lives in a small uh, apartment, uh, and so. But she she's been told that uh, with the new carbon tax, she'll be making roughly six hundred, uh, getting back six hundred and fifty-two dollars uh, annually. Uh, so she doesn't heat her uh, home with oil, um, but it's a small little flat and uh, doesn't drive. So. In many ways, I, I look at the. Uh, we, we'll wait and see how this shakes out in terms of, uh, uh, you know, how, uh, the rebate. Uh, this uh, what she's been told uh, uh, that she'll be making. So, in some ways, there will be those. Uh, a majority, from what I can see, a majority of people will be uh, getting. Um, the uh, a, a rebate on it, and probably be in money as well. Not maybe not much, but some. So that is NDP leader Jim Din uh, speaking to the money being spent on so-called travel or agency nurses to help fill the gaps in the healthcare system and also touching on the um, uh, carbon tax, which is coming into effect on July the 1st, which uh, many groups have expressed some uh, very serious concerns about because of the impact that's going to have on the cost of goods and services here in Newfoundland and Labrador. Well, if uh, you have any thoughts on that, you're certainly welcome to uh, weigh in in the coming days. In the meantime, the story that we're watching right now very closely off the coast of Newfoundland and Labrador is this uh, submersible part of uh, the um, expedition that goes out to the Titanic site. Um, it's been doing that for two years now, I want to say, uh, through Ocean Gate Expeditions. That's a U.S.-based company that uh, sends um, vessels down into um, the deep sea. And uh, we spoke with Stockton Rush, the uh, president and CEO of um, Ocean Gate earlier this year. He was in studio with us when they released a little video from the Titanic site, and we had such a fascinating conversation. He's he's such a well-versed guy, and uh, he apparently is one of the people on board of this submersible that um, we're hearing Sky News is uh, saying that uh, it's understanding the reason why it's believed that this because it takes a long time for this submersible to get to the bottom and I mean, then two miles, and then as you mentioned, to yeah. come back up again. That's hours and hours and hours. Mm-hmm. But apparently it pings so that uh, the uh, crew on the surface knows it's progressing, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And apparently they haven't heard a ping from uh, this particular um, submersible in about seven or eight hours. So that's what's led to some of these concerns. Now, um, could it be some kind of a communication problem uh, that remains to be seen at this stage but uh, certainly a lot of people thinking about those people on board that little submersible right now yeah I'm thinking about you know I'd like to have a positive spin because I I believe I read or heard that uh, has so many days as a you know safety that's what he told us yeah it's four days Uh, their their self-sufficient kind of thing yeah Yeah. will sustain life for at least four days so there's time Mm -hmm. Uh, but I can't imagine what it would be like to be stuck in something like that yeah but you know the people that go down there i would suspect where they're so knowledgeable that 
they would have some training in what to do, do in should just as if anybody were taking a plane for instance you'd have some sort of a knowledge um, and they have each other and like you said uh, that gentleman that uh, you interviewed earlier on uh, he's so well knowledgeable in this I'm sure he would have coping mechanisms to share with the rest of the crew yeah keeping people well keeping you people calm, calm. for starters yeah, yeah. because anytime you're be a in a confined space that can be a thing. bit mm-hmm. overwhelming so uh, anyway our thoughts are certainly going out to the crew there uh, both on the surface and in that submersible and uh, we'll be keeping you up to date on that throughout the course of the evening and into tomorrow and um, uh, we just hope for the best thanks Claudette Uh, we'll be back tomorrow so stay tuned for that Um, and uh, stay tuned for Noah Shepard now with the latest in VOCM news